Exodus chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're all most ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites of Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war with, against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Thank you, Philip. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. We thank you that we can know you because you reveal yourself to us through your word, the Bible. And we pray that as we think together this morning about your word, that you will open it up to us, that by the power of your spirit, you'll give us the ability both to understand and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, during the week, as I was preparing this passage and um, thinking about the service, I recognized there were quite a lot of things going on in this morning's service and uh, quite a lot going on in Exodus chapter 17. And so I decided that I would only preach on half of it. I then had the quandary, which half? There was a period during the week where I was thinking, well, why don't I just not decide? And I will say to the congregation on Sunday morning, let's have a show of hands for the first half or the second half. Wiser councils have prevailed. I, I, I made my own decision. We're going to go with the, with the first half, with the story of water from, from the rock. Uh, and I'll put a bit more about um, the Amalekites uh, into, uh, into the, the study notes for, for small groups.
Uh, but as we come to this story of water from the rock, um, there's some quite interesting and, and strange things about it. Here's something to notice. Uh, do keep page 75 open if, if you can, and, w- and we'll look at it together. And this is a story in which God provides enough water for a huge multitude of people. He provides enough water for them to drink in an arid part of an arid part of the world, if that makes sense. So they've gone deeper and deeper into the desert. They're at this place called Horeb. The name itself sort of suggests aridity, suggests a place with no water. Uh, And out of a rock, high up, he produces enough water for all of them to drink. The extraordinary thing in this chapter uh, well, um, look with verse 6 at, look at me, no, don't look at me, look at verse 6 with me, there we go, it was an early morning, right, uh, I will stand before ye by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink, so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, and what do you notice, what did it look like, what happened, you've got absolutely no idea, It's odd, isn't it? There's this enormous miracle, an extraordinary miracle. And we're not told what happened. We're just told that Moses did what God had said and then changed the name of the place from Rephidim to Massah and Meribah, which means quarreling and testing. That ought to make us just stop for a moment, oughtn't it? Why are we told about a miracle but not told about a miracle? This is an extraordinary moment in the history of the people where God provides water in the desert in the most extraordinary way and we don't even get an inkling of what happened other than we know that Moses struck a rock and we know that the people drank or at least we assume they did. So what's going on? Well, I know many of you won't have been with us last week. We're following uh, Israel through the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt. God has rescued them in the most extraordinary way. He has passed judgment on the gods of the Egyptians who've been holding Israel uh, captive, have been oppressing them, even uh, attempting a kind of political genocide of, uh, of the Jews. Uh, and, um, and God has liberated them powerfully. He brought a series of plagues on Egypt which are like judgments on the Egyptian gods. The Nile that provides the whole land with water for irrigation that meant that Egypt was notoriously fertile even though it was a very arid region because the Nile flows through while the Nile is turned to blood. That's the first of the plagues, these sort of miraculous shows of God's power that lead to Israel eventually being set free. And at the end, he's led them through the Red Sea. Moses has held up his staff, and the sea has parted. And the people have walked through, and God has then closed the sea over their enemies. The greatest army the world had ever seen to that point is is, is wiped out in a moment. But almost as soon as that is over, the people start to grumble. In chapter 16, as we saw last week, it's exactly a month after they've walked through the Red Sea uh, and um, they're already complaining that God doesn't really care about them. It would have been better if they could have died back in Egypt where at least the food was good. 
But God provided food, bread from heaven. If you are the sort of person that ever watches rugby, you'll know the song, kind of bread of heaven, bread of heaven. This is what it's referring to. That God every day gave bread from heaven for his people to eat as they walked in the wilderness, a place where there is no food. And yet, as they move from that place to this, from the wilderness of sin uh, to this place, Rephidim, as soon as there's any kind of challenge to them, they turn on God once again. So that what we see for Israel is that there's this huge problem, there's this dislocation. You see, they thought their problem was their location. They were in Egypt. They shouldn't be in Egypt. They should be in the land that God had promised. But actually, there's this problem of dislocation in their hearts. They are far from God. The God who loves them, the God who's rescued them, they don't trust him. They don't believe he cares. And that shows through time and time again. And now... Chapter 17, verse 1, they're thirsty. There's no water for them to drink, so they quarrel with Moses and say, give us water to drink. I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty. I mean, really thirsty. I think I can only remember one moment in my life where I've been like properly thirsty, thirsty. Uh, we were on a family holiday in Cornwall, and um, in those days I was playing a, a lot of rugby, and um, I had to do my pre-season fitness training. And uh, on this particular day, it meant going for a long run uh, and being rather senseless um, uh, and, and English at midday in August. Uh, yeah, you've guessed what's coming, haven't you? Uh, I, I went out uh, for a run up along the cliffs uh, near Mausel where we were staying. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was a lovely run. Until about halfway, I started to get really thirsty. Of course, I hadn't taken any water with me. I mean, why would you do that? By the time I got back to the cottage we were staying in, I was genuinely parched, desperate for a drink. There, in, uh, the, there on a table in the cottage was a uh, bottle of Evian, I think it was. Uh, you know, that's my favorite mineral water because backwards Evian is naive. Um, and that tells you uh, all you need to know. Uh, but um, I grabbed this bottle, pulled the lid off, necked it in one. It didn't touch the sides. Once I'd finished drinking it, and I realized it tasted a bit odd. <laughs> and I realized it had been quite cloudy. And I thought, what was in the bottle? What did I just drink? In fact, we were, um, my, my younger brother was, was there as well. And, and we, uh, I began to think it was drain cleaner. So um, we tried to figure out whose bottle it had been. We realized it was my aunt's. She was out. Um, she'd gone off uh, to uh, Penzance to go shopping. I phoned her up on her mobile. Uh, and um, I said, that, that bottle of water that was on the table, what was in it? And she said, oh, just water. It had been in the car for a year. Um, <laughs> anyway, here I am. I'm still with you. It was a long time ago. I think any ill effects must have passed by now. But thirst is so powerful. It overrides all the, the, the normal sort of sensible things that you will do. If you're desperate to drink, you will drink anything. And here are the people, and they're obviously in really dire straits. They're desperate. And thirst will kill you in about three days if you don't get a drink. 
So it's urgent. It's visceral. It's coming up from inside. They're, they're so thirsty that they are in desperate need and they recognize their desperate need. But they still haven't learned their lesson. They still haven't learned that the God who has led them here, and it's clear, isn't it, that this is God has led them. 17 verse 1, they've got traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. The Lord has taken them to this place. But they're so lacking in faith. And by that, I mean, not that they don't believe in God. They just don't believe that God loves them. They don't believe that God is good. He's led them here, and they think he's led them here to die. And so they quarrel with Moses. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Put the Lord the God, and put your, the Lord your God to the test. But the people were thirsty for water. They won't listen to reason. And they grumble against Moses. And they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And verse 4 shows us just how serious it's got. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And actually, the word that's being used for grumble here is a stronger word than the word that was used in the previous chapter where they grumble about food. The word that's being used for grumble here is a word that has kind of legal connotations. It's, it's almost as if the people are bringing a lawsuit against God and against Moses. Uh, and Moses says, look, they're just about ready to carry out the, the death penalty, which in that time was generally exercised by stoning. He says, these people are going to stone me. I'm in the dock. God, you're in the dock. And what happens, what follows in verses 5 and 6 is, as far as I can see, a unique occurrence in the Old Testament and is one of the strangest and most wonderful things that we see. This is the only time, what's there in chapter 17, verse 6, is the only time in the whole of the Old Testament where God stands before anyone. I'll explain what that means in a second. But it is totally unusual, completely, completely shocking. Why is it shocking? Well, look at what, Moses tells, what God tells Moses to do. Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now, one of the chief roles of elders uh, in the people of Israel at the time uh, was that they act, acted as the, sort of, as the court The elders are the ones who would hear a legal case. If if someone was accused of a crime, they'd be brought in front of the elders and they would have to um, give testimony in front of the elders and the elders would pass judgment on them. Uh, And Moses is commanded to come carrying this staff. Now, if you've been with us all along, you'll you'll, you'll know that the staff of Moses is very significant through the book of Exodus. Um, When he's uh, herding sheep in Midian, he's got his shepherd's crook there. And God says, it's with this staff that that I will set the the people free from Egypt. He tells Moses to throw it on the floor. It turns into a snake. Moses grabs it. It turns back into a staff. Uh, It is this staff with which he strikes the Nile and the Nile turns to blood. It's this staff that he holds out over the Red Sea and it parts like the aisle in the middle of this church and the people walk through. But a a staff like this is a symbol of judgment. And it's true in lots of different cultures. 
the, 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 the magistrate, the one charged with the exercise of justice, has a staff. And that's why our king is given a scepter. A staff, a scepter, is, is, is the sort of symbol of justice and of judgment on wrongdoing. And Moses is to take this staff with which judgment came on Egypt. So it's striking, isn't it, that, that God says to Moses, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. Moses has done an awful lot of things with this staff. And he does another thing in, in the second half of the chapter. He holds it up in, in, in prayer as, as the Amalekites come and fight against the people. And as Moses holds up the staff in prayer, then uh, the people, his people have victory. But God chooses to, 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 to say... This is the staff with which he struck the Nile. I think there are two reasons for that. One is that this is a story about water. Uh, and um, in Egypt, God's bring, God brings judgment by turning the water into blood. And there's nothing to drink in all of Egypt. Uh, and the staff is, the, is that, that rod is the instrument of justice. And now Moses carries this staff, this rod of justice. He goes with the elders, the court, judge, jury, and executioner. They walk together before the people. And I wonder what you think is going through the heads of your average Israelite as they see this procession coming through the camp. What are they thinking? They're thinking someone's got it coming. There's a judging to be done. Who is it? Who is in the dock? And then in verse 6, God says, I will stand there before you. Now that kind of language is the language of being sent to see the head teacher. If you get sent in to see the head teacher, who is standing in front of whom? You're standing in front of the head teacher, right? If you go into a court of law, and the judge is there, and you're in the dock. Who is standing in front of who? You're standing in front of the judge, right? We still use that language. You go and stand before the judge. And God says, I will stand before you, Moses. I will stand in the place of the accused. And I will stand before you, and, and the word it, we, we translate it as by, but it could be on the rock. I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb and you with your instrument of justice, with this symbol of punishment, strike the rock and water will come out. The people put, in in chapter 16, we see that God is testing the people by leading them through the wilderness. He's revealing what's in their hearts. He's testing them, showing what their relationship to him is really like, that they don't trust him, that they don't love him, that they don't believe that he loves them. Exactly, he, he then provides them with abundant food in the wilderness, but still they don't believe that he loves them. Still they don't believe that he cares about them. And they rebel. They put him to the test. They put themselves in the place of God and they test him and they say, is God really among us? Are you really good? Are you really going to save us? And God says, okay, let's settle this once and for all. And he puts himself in the dock. And he says, strike me. 
and I will provide you with water. I will save you, even as I bear punishment for you. It's absolutely extraordinary. Unless you think I'm reading too much into it, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Warning people not to be like the Israelites in the wilderness, not to fail to trust God, but to love him and believe him and to obey him. This is what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Paul points to this moment where water comes from the rock and says, that's Jesus. That's pointing to Jesus. I don't think I'd ever realize quite how important the Exodus story is to the Gospels. I, mean, I knew it mattered. I knew it was important. I knew there were themes of a, a second Exodus and things like that in, in, in the Gospels. But my goodness. Last week, we saw that in John 6, Jesus refers to himself as the bread come from heaven. He, he, he points to Exodus 16 and says, that's speaking of me. I'm the one who can provide food in the wilderness. I'm the one who can ultimately satisfy. I'm the bread. In John 4, meeting with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well in an arid place, Jesus says, if you knew he was speaking to you, you'd ask him and he would give you water. And anyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again. In John chapter 7, at the great festival, Jesus says this, on the last and greatest day of the festival, John stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus says, I am the one who can give water to the thirsty soul. I am the one that the Exodus was pointing to. I am the God of Exodus 17 who can give you streams of living water in the wilderness. And how does John describe the end of Jesus' life? I wonder if you know. This is uh, John chapter 19 and verse 24. Sorry, verse 28, my eyesight's terrible. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled... Jesus said, I am thirsty. The one who can satisfy the thirst of everyone and satisfy that thirst permanently so they will never be thirsty again, who can make springs of living water well up inside anyone who comes to him, is thirsty. He is suffering He is suffering what his people were suffering in the wilderness. They are thirsty. God is struck. They have water. Here is Jesus. God himself in human form. 
hanging on a cross and the way that he points to what his death is fulfilling is he says, I am thirsty. And then as he dies and when he is dead, the centurions have been told they've got to break the bodies of all uh, the um, people who've been crucified so that they can die quickly and be taken down. When they come to Jesus, this is John 19, 33, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And John says, the one who saw it testifies uh, and has given testimony, uh, he knows that he tells the truth when he testifies so that you may believe. Jesus, hanging on a cross, is struck with a spear and out of his side flows water. Water and blood, and the blood is significant in John's gospel, as many of you will know. But actually, out of his side, as he is beaten in that place of judgment, forth from him comes water. The one who is thirsty gives water. So what does this all tell us? Well, I think one extraordinary thing is simply just how much there's just one story running through the whole Bible from beginning to end. So the events of Exodus 17 are about as far away in time from uh, the death of Jesus as we are from the fall of Rome. Okay, so it's ancient history back when Sussex was still the kingdom of the South Saxons. And yet even then, there's this picture of what it is that Jesus is going to do, that he is the living God who stands in the place of punishment and receives punishment instead of his people and in so doing gives life. It's one story. And even that is enough to build faith, isn't it? You see, across thousands of years, God is telling one story. The story of how Jesus would come and would die so that his people could live. That Jesus would come and would thirst so that his people could have their thirst quenched spiritually. It's an extraordinary thing. Secondly, I think it answers a question that many of us have deep down inside us, which is, does God really love me? That's the problem that the Israelites had. They, they, they knew God was there. They could not doubt the reality of him. He had done such extraordinary miracles in their presence, and yet they still didn't trust him. They still didn't have faith. They still didn't believe that he would provide for them, that he would save them, that he would give them what they needed. So they didn't turn to him. They turned against him. And actually, when difficult things come into our lives, that's often the point at which we realize, well, how strong is our faith? Do we really believe that God loves us? Or does it actually reveal that deep down we think God doesn't really care about me? And the thing is, you can believe that God is good, you can believe that God is love, you can believe that God is there, but still think that somehow 
for some reason that doesn't apply to you. And I think this story shows us the mighty God himself was willing to put himself in the dock and was willing to face judgment for us. In a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table. We'll share bread and wine, those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, and that bread and that wine speak to us of just how much God does love you. Let them speak to you. Pray as you come and receive them that actually God would reshape the map of your heart so that you would learn to love him as he really does love you. And then thirdly, maybe you don't yet know the Lord Jesus and maybe you're searching for something in your life. You're aware that, okay, let's use this language of thirst. You're looking for something. You're thirsty. You know that there is somehow in your heart and in your soul something that's not quite right. Life doesn't quite make sense. And what I think God's saying to you this morning, if that's you, is come and drink. Here is the God who satisfies the thirst even of people who turn against him, who don't love him. He says to you, come and drink. I'll put myself in the dock. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be afraid. I will welcome you. Just come. Come and drink. And you need never be thirsty again.